1: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Barb McQuaid. This week, we'll be talking about the Texas abortion law, SB8, the trial of Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes, and the potential release of RFK's assassin, Sirhan Sirhan. As always, we look forward to answering some of your questions at the end of the show. Uh, This has been a long week. We have had some really, really heavy news, and we're going to get into that. But um, before we do that, um, I want to talk about a tweet that um, we got this week with asking some advice, and I want to hear your advice on that. But before we even get to that, I think we need to be fortified with something else, which is the amazing, upbeat news that ABBA, the greatest band (laughs) in pop music history, is recording a new album (gasps) after 40 years. I'm so excited. We were talking about this yesterday, and as a result, Kim has got a song popping in my head. (laughs) I can't take stop. Take a chance, take a chance, take a chance. <laughs> That's a yeah. good. Song. Are you guys album fans? That was like, I'm you know, going to spare
0: is y'all me singing Dancing Queen because I mean, you would you would run That's screaming the song. away. That's the, the it's anthem, stuck isn't it? in my head. Yeah. I'm so excited about this new album.
1: Me As a too. child of the '70s, "Dancing Queen" was the ultimate song when you had like your friends over and you're hanging out in the basement and you're playing records on the record player that you sing into your hairbrush and kind of dance around in the in absolutely. the basement. So I I was listening That's a to great it. Great image.
2: Car, <laughs> it is a great image, and it is something even I, who was a little before that because I was already out of law school by the time they were popular, absolutely loved especially dancing queen that is a song of the ages for sure And you
1: know we were corrected and- yesterday they're actually called abba here in the midwest we always call them abba that's that's three syllables a- yeah. abba what about you kim you're a you're a michigan yeah that's part of that michigan ABBA.
3: that that michigan twang that um i went to to a speech therapist to help lose but yeah it's like you go to, <laughs> you know you used to go to the basketball
1: game it's abba yeah. abba played ABBA. It before the basketball ABBA. I guess game it's- I guess it's Abba. I occasionally have the responsibility of of making the playlist for my daughter's hockey uh, team. You know, like the the hype music and the music between periods, and you know, I include her requests and some you know pop music, hip hop music, and things like that. But I always include two songs that I think these girls need to hear. One is um, uh, "Dancing Queen," and the other is "Respect" by Aretha Franklin. Those are nice. always yes. on the playlist. Got to have those two. Got to have the anthems.
2: Excellent. How about "I Am Woman"? Hear me roar. <laughs> I'll add that to the
1: next one. All right. Well, let's talk about this tweet that we got. I think uh, some of us responded to it. The tweet was from someone who said, you know, she was considering going to law school, but it seemed that every lawyer she asked uh, advised her against it. And I just wanted to ask each of you what, you know, we've all been, we all made this decision at some point and we now have these careers to look back on. Uh, What advice would you give to somebody who's considering law school? Kim, let me start with you.
3: Oh, well, so I um, get asked this a lot. And the standard answer that I give generally is if you know, if you're ready and you understand what law school is and what it isn't, and you know exactly what you want to get out of it, then God bless and good luck and go. If not, think very carefully about it. Law school is not like uh, any other master's program. It's not like an MBA. It's not like nursing school or other specific professions or medical school where they teach you how to do the thing you're going to do. It's 3 years. It is obscenely expensive. Like there's no reason that it should cost as much as it does. And particularly if you are funding it yourself and certainly if you are going into debt for it, you need to think very carefully. Law school, now I would start off by saying, I'm glad I have my JD. Certainly I have had a great career and I think the JD has played a part of it. I don't know what my life would have looked like had I not gone. Um, And I wanted to be an attorney. I thought I really knew what I was going there for. But I didn't understand how competitive it would be that it was sort of set up, at least when I went um, years ago, um, it was sort (laughs) of set up that it was really difficult to get to the top. It was also difficult to be at the bottom. It sort of set up, it was graded on a curve to kind of make most people be B plus students essentially. Uh, In the way that it was graded, but because you were literally graded against your classmates and it created a very hyper um, competitive environment that wasn't great for me. I was there to learn. I wasn't there to compete. That was difficult. And that was three years of my life. Thank goodness I found a very good therapist and my school, Boston University, um, actually had a really good mental, mental health services there because I was depressed. I needed to go on antidepressants during that time and that helped get me through it. It was very difficult for me. Also for me personally, unlike a lot of my classmates, the result of law school is what has been so far a lifetime of debt. I still have student loans. I'm in my 40s and I'm still paying them off. Um, so that is quite a commitment that stays with you for a very long time. A, a, another attorney who's a friend of mine who's fairly prominent just tweeted this week that he paid his student loans, just paid his student loans off. He's about the same age as me. So that's decades of debt. Um, it made I, It's one reason why I don't own a home yet. So it, it's a lot. Um, it's not a place to go while you figure things out. It's not a place to go just to make somebody else happy because your parents want you to go or or something like that. Just know what you want to get out of it. What about you, Joyce?
0: You know, it's funny that you mentioned student loans. I finished paying mine off the year before we sent our oldest child to college. Mm. And so it is important that you think about finances. But I had a very different experience in law school. I absolutely loved it. Part of that may have been because the University of Virginia, where I went to law school, uh, seemed to foster a lot more cooperation than it did competition. In fact, I will out my entire small section now, I'm not going to say how many years down the road, with the confession that before one of our first semester final exams we made an agreement that nobody would study and we would all watch the basketball playoff games together. It was during the Ralph... It wasn't playoffs, actually. It was it was during the season. It was the Ralph Sampson era, and I remember it was the Georgetown game. And we all watched because grading was on a curve. It was a B mean. And so our theory was that if nobody studied, we'd all get the same grades anyhow, but we'd get to watch this great matchup of Ralph Sampson. And, and it was Ewing who was then at, at Georgetown, and it was a really good game. Um, I have found, and I loved studying the law. I I continue to be fascinated by the law as an exercise in, in thinking about, um, why we're fortunate to live in the country that we're in, what works, what doesn't work, what we can do better, and what our basic values are. But I just, I loved the people so much. The relationships are sustaining. I married one of my law school classmates. I talk with others of our classmates every day, and we have supported each other throughout the years. But the, the reason that I would give, and I think it's a personal decision as Kim says, you should be thoughtful about why you're going to law school and what you hope to accomplish. A law degree will let you go to a, a big you know, practice on Wall Street if that's what you desire and if that's the sort of ability you have. But there is so much more you can do. And because this has been a tough week for women in particular, I actually made a list— of women who I admire who've used their law degrees in ways that I think would inspire me if I was making the decision right now to go to law school. And the person at the top of my list was Dahlia Lithwick at Slate with her articulate analysis of what goes on in the Supreme Court and especially her thoughtful Uh, way of looking at the Texas abortion decision that we're about to discuss. But I also thought about about Barb's and my former colleague, Vanita Gupta, who's at DOJ, taking on a tremendous amount of responsibility for getting the rule of law right. Of course, Justices Kagan and Sotomayor and pretty much every woman lawyer who went to the border when Trump was in the the grip of the family separation policy and who fought that policy, but also the women who've stayed engaged up till today on that and other important issues. To me, that's what getting your law degree lets you do. Yes, it lets you practice law, but it gives you the tools to engage in really important activism and, and From this perspective on my career, that's what I value, that I was well-educated about how to help people. And whether that's in a big way or in a small way, you know, every client that you help as a lawyer, you're important to them. And that's really a gift that we can give to our communities. So I'm sorry to wax on for so long, but I'm very affirmative on going to law school, especially right now.
1: How about you, Jill? What's your advice?
2: My advice is go. And yes, you need to take into account what you want to do with it, but even if you don't want to practice law, which is, I went to law school not wanting to be a lawyer. And by the way, Joyce, I too married someone from Columbia Law School. Uh, Mine didn't work out quite so well as yours, Uh, but. I don't hold it against Columbia Law School, uh, which I thought gave me a great education in critical thinking skills, in problem solving, and in activism. It taught me how to solve and do. And I went because I wanted to be a journalist and thought that the law school training would help me to be able to convince an editor that I had the skills to report on important news events at a time when women in journalism were consigned to the woman's page. And it worked. Um, It it definitely was good background for that, although I ended up practicing law for most of my career. And I I just think that the skills you learn are something that are helpful, whether you decide to be a journalist or to go into business. The ways that we learn to think and negotiate and to put together a persuasive case, whether you want to be a lobbyist, it's great training for that. Um, So I think it is a terrific way to be a better thinker and that it's definitely worth doing. And of course, if you go into public service, you can get your loans forgiven. And um, that's something that wasn't available, even though I did go into public service right out of law school. That wasn't the case then. Now it is. that's one way to help with your student loans. And I, I think it's just the right thing to do. I highly get some recommend of them. It. it. Not necessarily uh, yeah. all, but some of them. Yeah. Yes. The, the other thing is I do know I've mentored a number of young people. And one of them who I thought for sure was going to be a lawyer ended up being a paralegal and getting his master's in paralegal studies. And he, in working in a law firm, said, I really don't want to work. The hours that it requires in a law firm, and I can enjoy the intellectual challenge through being a paralegal. So there are other options to be helpful and involved in the law without finishing law school.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree that is, as everybody here has said, it's something to think carefully about. You know, you just don't want to go on a whim just because the investment is substantial, not only the money. But you know the attention, the effort that you need to put into it. But like all of you, I have found it life changing. Uh, it has opened doors to do incredibly impactful work, uh, and I think all of us deserve to do work that is interesting and challenging and important to us. And you know, for every person, uh, those qualities are going to be met in different ways. But for me, being a lawyer has uh, been so interesting and so challenging and uh, has allowed me to do work that I consider important. And and that makes for a very satisfying uh, work life. So I've loved every minute of being a lawyer. I like studying the law. I know not everybody loves law school, but like you, Joyce, I enjoyed law school as well. Um, So uh, I I think it, it can be a wonderful uh, opportunity for many people, but it 's not for everybody, and so something to to think about uh, as you go through that. but there are ways to learn about whether it 's for you. You know You can read law books and see if that 's something that you think appeals to you. You can look at the kinds of careers that you think you might want to do and see if that 's for you. You can get a tour or sit in on a law school class uh, to get a feel for what it 's like, so there are a lot of ways to kind of explore the law. Um, you know, talk talk to people who, in the law. Talk to us. We'd, yeah. we'd be happy to – all four of us, I'm sure, would be happy to uh, help people in, in their consideration of law school. But and and I, I know sometimes add, people th- – uh, Sorry, Kim. I just
3: wanted to add one thing I because I, I know some of them are listening too. I made the best friends of my life. I have a group of – I'm part of a group of eight women, all of us graduates from Boston University Law School. And we have been getting together once a year for the past 20 years uh, since our graduation <laughs> – um, and they are my sisters. And I am so glad uh, that's really worth every bit of every penny that I've paid to the Department of Education since I graduated um, meeting them. So it, it will certainly change your life. I didn't find my spouse there, but I found, a, you know, I married a Harvard Law
2: grad. So I, you know, law school does, does produce good husbands. <laughs> So I hated law school. I totally (laughs) hated it. And I was completely unprepared for the competitiveness. I came from a Big Ten school. Most of my classmates were Ivy League. I felt completely out of my depth and paralyzed with fear every single day that I'd be called on and wouldn't be able to answer the Socratic method questions. But even with all of that... I am so glad I went to law school, and I know I wouldn't have had the life I have if I hadn't. And I still think it was worth every ounce of energy it took to get through it.
1: All right, so let's see who our first sponsor is today. Oh, it's third love. Well, you know, I uh, I make it a practice not to talk about my undergarments. So Kim, what do you think about third love?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I don't love talking about underwear as a general rule, but one thing that I do like about third love as somebody who uh, on the side, I do do fashion design. And I think one thing that makes your clothes look nice is when your foundational garments fit you properly and they are the right ones for you. And I find certainly when I'm wearing third love, my clothing looks great. I don't have to worry about it bunching in weird places or having unsightly lines. Um, And that's really important for one's overall look. So I really appreciate that about it. What about you, Joyce?
0: Well, you know, after having four children, I think I've lost most of my sense of privacy, and I am happy to talk about my underwear. Um, I actually really love Third Love's bras in in a way that I'm not used to thinking I love bras. I ordered one earlier this week. I didn't realize we had them as an advertiser this week, or I would have waited and used the code, which I hope all of our listeners will use. But I like this t-shirt bra so much because I I forget that it's on. It's really comfortable. And like you say, Kim, it makes all the difference in how you look. The half cup sizes are genius for somebody
2: like me. Jill, what about you? So I'm in the camp of I would prefer not talking about my undergarments, except that as I age, I've lost all inhibitions about saying hello to people on uh, strangers in elevators um, that I wouldn't have done before. Are you telling people about your bra on elevators? (laughs) No, not the bra on elevators, but I'm willing to tell all of our listeners about how comfortable third love is. And I got very early on, months ago, I got the t-shirt bra, which you just mentioned, and it is a fabulous look. And it is totally like at the end of the day, it's not like it's the first thing I want to get off. I can't wait to get my bra off. It's perfectly wonderful. I think it is a very, very wonderful product. That's a lot about bras. (laughs) And Third Love creates high-quality
3: underwear, sleep and loungewear, with cup sizes from AA to I, including exclusive half cups and lounge and sleepwear in sizes extra small to 3X. Get ready to feel good. Just take the easy fitting room quiz and Third Love does the rest, focusing your fit on size, shape current issues, and your personal style to deliver bras and underwear that are perfect for you. They even have stylists on standby. As
0: y'all know now, I love their number one best-selling 24-7 classic t-shirt bra. It provides all the comfort and support you need in more than 80 sizes. Third Love gives gently used, returned bras to women in need, and they've
2: donated over $40 million in bras so far. Third Love knows you deserve to feel comfortable and confident 24-7. So right now, they are offering our listeners 20% off the first order. So you should do another order again, Joyce, and use our coupon. Go to thirdlove.com slash law to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash law for 20% off today. Look for the link in our show notes.
1: Let's move on to our first topic of the day. And it is one that is a doozy. It has been in the news. Um, and it is uh, the SB 8 and what's gone on this week in the Fifth Circuit and then in the Supreme Court. And I think, Kim, you're going to take us through that discussion.
3: Yes. So this is the week where I think the question on everyone's mind is what is the future of Roe v. Wade, the president that. Uh, we've all known to protect reproductive rights and access to reproductive health care in this country. So um, before I ask all y'all some questions, I just want to sort of set this up by talking about Roe itself and what has happened since and what led us to this point. So January 22nd, 1973, that's when the U.S. Supreme Court uh, made its decision in Roe versus Wade, that case uh, involved a Texas statute, Texas is quite the state, um, that made it a crime to perform abortions unless a woman's life was at stake. And the Supreme Court uh, held in that case for the first time that there was a constitutional right of privacy that, quote, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. And that was huge. So some years later, 1992, uh, in a case called uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the court reaffirmed Roe and clarified uh, exactly what this right meant. Some people said that it it sort of um, restricted it a little bit. But it, it held that in order to succeed on a constitutional challenge to a law— Uh, that the law must be shown to have the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle, and sometimes the term substantial burden is used, in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. So these are the bedrock cases that really created this right. I remember in 2007, it was the first day as a journalist that I covered the U.S. Supreme Court. I covered the court for almost a decade. And the first time I showed up there to go to an argument, it happened to be the day that the decision in a case called Carhart v. Gonzalez was handed down. That was when the court was considering the federal uh, so-called partial birth abortion law. It's a terrible term, uh, but it meant to apply to abortions that took place later in the term. And in that case, the Supreme Court upheld... The, this um, law, even though it did not provide an exception for the life or health of the mother. And that Day, Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave a dissent from the bench. It was not the first time she had given a bench dissent, but it was the first in what would be a string of dissents that she would give from the bench during that period of time when the court handed down decisions where she called out what the court was doing and even called for change, and sometimes Congress would listen to her. But in this case, she pointed out very pointedly that on that day in 2007 was the first time that Roe was significantly rolled back because a law was approved that did not provide the very protection for the life of the mother that had been protected by Roe and Casey. So fast forward a little bit more, 2014 there was a case called June Medical, which dealt with uh, one of many laws during that time that we saw being passed, which put so many restrictions on the providers of abortion services that it Led to an essential ban. It required things like people who performed abortion had to be uh, uh, admitted or, or associated with a hospital. You know, because if something goes wrong, if a woman needs to go to a hospital, they need to be able. Oh, a woman can go to a hospital whether or not the provider is a member of that hospital or not. It provided that um, the facilities had to have doors big enough to roll a gurney through, which is all kinds of things that had nothing to do with actual performing of these services. And the Supreme Court struck down that law, saying that uh, whatever benefits these laws were trying to put in place, they played no comparison to the burden that it was putting on women. But that is also a case where Chief Justice John Roberts laid down one important marker signaling that the benefit part shouldn't even be a part of this equation. He sort of, it was a plurality decision, not a moral, not a majority, where it wasn't five votes for the reasoning that Justice Breyer gave in that decision. It was five votes that it was struck down. Uh, Roberts joined by saying that it was too much of a significant burden on women. But it was kind of the first time, at least certainly for me, as a watcher of the Supreme Court, that said, you know what, there could be a shift afoot here. And that brings us to this week. Um, But before we get to what happened this week, I want to turn to Jill because I know for a lot of our listeners, they're folks like me for my entire lifetime, Roe v. Wade has been the law of the land. And I want to get a sense for people to understand what life was like before the right to full reproductive rights. Accessing that was constitutionally protected by the U.S. Supreme Court. So Jill... Why don't you tell us about the pre-row, the pre-row landscape? What was it like? Did women and physicians face legal jeopardy? Was abortion safe and accessible?
2: It was a very different time, and I think this is an important thing for our listeners to pay attention to, because it is time for Kim's generation and the younger generation to take charge of this fight. It's no longer should be my fight. I have been fighting this for more than 50 years, and it's time for someone else to take But back then, the differences were rich and poor, which it will be again if we see, and let's not forget that Mississippi's law is the one that's going to probably be the real death knell for Roe. But if you had money, you could go out of state to a state that had it legal, But for most people in most states, it was illegal. If I had gotten pregnant and wanted to terminate the pregnancy while I was in law school, I would not have been able to in New York. And New York was one of the first to liberalize its laws, but that didn't happen until after I was out of law school. Uh, California preceded it. I might have been able to fly to California. But other than those states, um, there were very few choices. And the procedures were dangerous. And I have to say for Joyce's benefit, at least, knitting needles were one of the tools of committing abortion. Uh, Hangers were used to try to perforate the uterus to abort the child. Um, Pregnancy tests and even birth control really were not readily available back then. And so... You had a problem of, you didn't know you were pregnant because you couldn't get a pregnancy test except by going to a doctor and doing a urine test. Um, There was a patchwork of laws. There were states, as I said, California in the 60s uh, allowed abortion, uh, New York in 70, and then Roe in 73. Um, There was legal jeopardy if you did it, and, and if you were a doctor, definite legal jeopardy. It wasn't safe, so your life was at risk. Um, you are now 14 times more likely to die from childbirth than from an abortion. Abortion is now, of course, safe. Um, And we now know we, we can do home pregnancy tests to know that you're pregnant and need an abortion, not at six weeks, but, you know, sooner than not. Um, And so we all celebrated when Roe said that it was viability was the standard, and I just have to mention that that standard came from um, a law clerk, a Supreme Court law clerk named Larry Hammond, who was a Watergate colleague of mine, and he was a clerk for Powell, and he is the one who came up with, well, let's not make it first trimester, let's make it viability, and um, so I Then, of course, you had even Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying, no, that's not the right test. We're pushing it too far. We should let it evolve socially. Let states gradually make these changes. Um, And so now the Mississippi law is going back to uh, first trimester. And um, the other thing that that has changed a lot in the time is the language. Um, We no longer call, I mean, the language of, of what was called choice, is now not called pro-choice. It's called pro reproductive liberty or pro-woman's health, uh, pro-life of the mother, which, is, as you mentioned, Kim, you know, there were, were no exceptions for the life and, of the mother, even physical life as opposed to, and certainly not mental life, so um, And nowadays, we also need to be careful to say the laws should protect anyone with a uterus because trans um, men could Correct. become pregnant. And so the, we have to be careful in the words we use. But basically, back pregnant. then, it was a very different world. And I had a, um, a college friend who had to drop out because she got pregnant and because she couldn't get an abortion. Her life was changed dramatically. She didn't graduate college, she had the child, and I I mean, she loves her children and she's a happy person, but I think, you know, how would her life be if she hadn't dropped out of college?
3: Yeah, I, uh, just this week alone, I've gotten messages or seen Twitter notes from people who have had... You know, medical conditions, anything from severe type 1 diabetes to um, having been diagnosed prenatally, the child um, with a really terrible condition that would have either ended the life, made it end in the stillbirth that would have threatened the the mother's life or just really horrible awful decisions that you have to make in the first place and to have a choice taken away um, that gives real meaning. When people say abortion is healthcare, it really gives real meaning to that. Um, So Barb, I want to turn to you now to talk about what happened this week. Now that we set up what I think is really important context for this um, and talk about what the Supreme court order means for Roe. It didn't overrule it. You can't overrule precedent and on this, on the, um, on uh, the shadow docket, but why do we know that Roe is in trouble?
1: Well, the the statute in Texas, this SB-8, um, it completely contradicts Roe versus Wade, which is Jill just said, um, the, the markation is viability. And so the state cannot prohibit a woman or uh, a person with a uterus from obtaining an abortion um, anytime... Um, that is before that twenty two uh, to twenty four week period, the viability of of the fetus has been the law of the land with roe versus Wade, and then Kim, as you said there's case the the, the Casey case Planned Parenthood versus Casey that has also said that a state cannot put um, an undue burden on a person seeking an abortion, so we've got in the face of that case, law Texas passes this statute that says that um it will prohibit the abortion of any fetus where a heartbeat can be detected, and that occurs at about six weeks. So now we've got this huge gap between what the Constitution and what the Supreme Court has said is protected and what this Texas law provides. The, the tricky part of their statute is that it's got a little bit of a um, uh, a litigation trap in it in that it doesn't say that it is the state that will punish people who perform abortions after a heartbeat is detected. It says that any person may file a lawsuit against anyone who is assisting a person in obtaining an abortion, a doctor, a healthcare provider, anyone who aids or abets is the language, uh, a person in getting an abortion and that $10,000 may be the reward for such conduct. So as a matter of public policy, you know, th- this is a very troubling law. Someone asked me, are there other statutes that have this formula where essentially bounty hunters are created by it? And the only one I'm aware of is the Fugitive Slave Act, where they, you know, deputize private citizens to arrest runaway slaves so that they could be, you know, crowdsource uh, the the job of, of capturing people who had um, fled for freedom. And so um, what makes it tricky is that ordinarily, um, you would file a lawsuit against the uh, state actor who is assigned to enforce this law, whether it's the attorney general of the state or uh, wh- whoever that might be. And instead, because this deputizes individuals, there are a lot of questions about standing and about um, whether f- these parties have sued the right defendants. So a lawsuit was filed to challenge this statute in July, um, and. Uh, the defendants, who are uh, a judge representing a class of all judges who would be enforcing this law, and clerks of the court who would be enforcing this law, were the defendants that were sued in this case, as well as a private individual who advocates uh, on, against reproductive rights. Um, and the judge in that case denied their motion to dismiss. By the way, Joyce, do you know who the district court judge is in this case? I do. That would be Judge Robert Pittman, the former United
0: States attorney in that part of Texas,
1: Uh, and and a righteous, strong, straight arrow. Yeah, our our old friend from the U.S. attorney community days during the Obama administration, he served— as the U.S. attorney there and is now a federal judge there. And uh, a motion was filed to dismiss that case by those defendants. He denied that motion, and he very diligently set a hearing for earlier this week before the law would go into effect on September 1st and was going to sort it out. Now, in the meantime, uh, those litigants appealed that decision to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and they said, we are staying all proceedings in the district court because we have to work through these issues on appeal. But of course, that order meant that in the meantime, while they work through these difficult issues about immunity and other things, whether the right defendants are sued, on September 1st, that law is going to go into effect. And so uh, they, they didn't do what is expected, I think, in a case like this, which is to stay their order, stay the law, so that you can preserve the status quo while the courts figure things out. So in the face of that, an emergency petition was filed with the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think most people thought they would do what they have done in other instances. We've talked, about, just last week, we talked about the so-called shadow docket of the court, where they're making a lot of really important substantive decisions on their summer recess in these very short, brief, unsigned opinions. Um, and they did that in this instance. They 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 did nothing when September 1st came and went. And then on September 2nd, they issued an opinion, and the majority said, um, We think that there are a lot of procedural complexities in this case, and so we're not going to intervene at this time because it would be useful to the court to have full briefing and to have the parties work through the district court and the court of appeals so that we can decide this case. That makes perfect sense. What doesn't make any sense at all is the position that was articulated by the four dissenting justices, including Chief Justice John Roberts, who said, yes, it is procedurally complex, and it does make sense for us to spend more time on this, but in light of the fact that there is a constitutional right at stake here, the normal course would be to stay the the implementation of this statute so that we can preserve the status quo while we work it out. Instead, because the court has now essentially done nothing and said we're going to let this lawsuit run its course— that law became, it went on the books on September 1st. And so there are women in Texas who could get an abortion on August 31st who now can't, uh, who may lack the resources to go out of state. And I think, as, as Jill was saying yesterday, this law does not mean there will be no abortions in Texas. This law means there will be no legal abortions mm. in Texas. Um, I, I, and I think one of the things to point out, I think not only is this an attack on reproductive rights, but it is also an attack on the rule of law. Um, The test is typically if there is a likelihood of success on the merits in light of Roe versus Wade. It seems that would be true under any good faith uh, review of this case in the statute Um, and whether the parties would suffer irreparable harm if the court were not to enter an injunction to stay the proceedings. Uh, That was the basis of the John Roberts dissent, and it seems that in light of the court's willingness to ignore the rule of law in this case. I think it does not bode well for the future, what they think the future of Roe versus Wade is. And I also don't think it bodes well for the future of the rule of law in this country. Whatever your view is on abortion, a justice of the Supreme Court owes a fidelity to the law. And I think that has been um, grossly violated in this instance. I I completely
2: agree. agree with you and am horrified that the primary decision about a stay is almost always, what is the likelihood of success? And how can anyone look at this and not say that this law violates uh, and burdens the exercise of the right of women and uh, trans with a uterus? Um, And it is created mob rule against women. I mean, it's more than just the rule of law, it is mob rule. Uh, but the one thing I, I just want to point out, you mentioned this heartbeat, and there is much medical evidence, and I can attach some articles to our show notes um, that talk about this, that at six weeks, there is no heart, and there is no heartbeat. There is an electrical impulse where there will be a heart eventually. Uh, but So calling this a heartbeat is goes back to what I was saying about language, and the far right has got great language. And calling this a heartbeat makes it very sympathetic. Mm-hmm. But it's not really a legitimate heartbeat. And I think we, we need to pay attention to that. I also want to mention uh, something you else also said. Um, there's a movie called Birthright, A War Story. And it talks about all the consequences of the anti-abortion movement. And the fact that, for example, your life could be at risk And you couldn't find someone in your state who knows how to help you by doing an abortion. And I I think it's a movie that everyone who's interested in this issue should see. It's available widely on streaming, and I'll post that as well as part of our show notes.
3: I want to get Joyce into this, but I also just want to point out when it comes to these stays, it also, the harm that it can do is a factor. And these women have six weeks. Most women don't know they're pregnant six weeks in. And if they only have, in reality, a week, two tops, and this law has been allowed to go into place, I just don't understand why the Supreme Court didn't just say, halt it for now, maybe we'll uphold it later. But my goodness, it's really, um, that's what signals to me, I really believe that Roe is gone. But I want to get to Joyce to chime in on this and also lead us into our discussion about what happens in the future. What might this law mean, not just for abortion rights, but for other constitutional rights too?
0: Well, I have to say this has been a tough week for all of us. I think we get that sense that we're all angry and have a lot we want to get off our chests. And I'm trying to find humor where I can this week. So I'm tickled that while we've been sitting here taping, one of my neighbors just texted all of the women on our street and said, Texas makes me want to drink. Are y'all around at 530? My porch. (laughs) Um, And I suspect that there are women all across America. Who are, who are sort of feeling that way right now, and that in many ways this transcends partisan politics, I hope it does so that we can fix it but kim it's it 's a good question to ask, right? What happens next and so while the supreme court 's decision here and and we've we 've said and it 's important to note this is not a substantive merits decision about whether the Texas statute is constitutional. This is a shadow docket decision, which means it 's a procedural decision on an emergency appeal trying to keep the law from going into effect while litigation over its constitutionality is ongoing. That's sort of where we are um, in the middle of the legal roadmap. But what the Supreme Court did by permitting this Texas law to go into effect and refusing to enjoin it is they've created a roadmap for every like-minded state, Every conservative state out there can adopt a Texas-style law. I spoke with Alabama legislators this morning, and I asked them, you know, are are we going to get a Texas law? They all agreed that we would. Um, And and one of them, when I asked him that question, his immediate response was, is water wet? Like, you know, girl, why are you even asking me? Of course we're going to have a statute like Texas. The Supreme Court has now shown us the way to ban abortion. Even if these are only temporary bans, even if ultimately the issues are considered and, you know, by the grace of God, parts of Roe survive. And I should say that there's a cynical part of me that thinks that the Republicans don't want to do away with Roe completely, right? It's a great fundraising device for the Republican Party. So maybe they'll gut Roe, but somehow let it remain in place when the the, uh, Mississippi case Dobbs is in the court next year. But that said, even if this Texas law doesn't stay in effect long term, it creates the sort of fear and uncertainty that chills access to abortion rights. Because there will always be this, you know, we watch this stuff every day. We stay on top of it. But if you're just a a person who's living your life, who doesn't have the time to devote to it or formal legal training, this this knowledge in the back of your mind that there's a $20,000 bounty on your head, if you drive your friend or neighbor to get an abortion, that may stick around and could chill these rights in a very real way long term. So so there's that direct sort of roadmap that the court creates for other states to ban abortion. But there's also a second roadmap, I think, that is a little bit even more concerning, frankly, or as concerning about what the court is doing with the shadow docket here. You know, we've discussed the fact that the shadow docket itself is not sinister. It's, it's a great name that it, that it was given, but in reality it's just a, a case management tool that the court uses while it's deciding what cases it will hear. It sort of permits them to manage and, and enter stays in some of these cases. But as Justice Kagan points out in in her dissent in this situation, she says that the court has an alarming record of inconsistency in what she calls a recent spate of late-night emergency orders. And that's what gives states like Texas this sort of go-ahead to do more damage to our rights. The court's hands-off approach on abortion here, it's a sharp contrast to its willingness to intervene, in some of the religious liberty cases and and keep statutes, for instance, in the COVID context, right? Statutes that were designed for public health, but that prevented religious exercise, if you viewed it that way. Well, the court has permitted those statutes to be blocked while uh, permitting this one to go into effect. And I think that signals a willingness on the court's behalf to reward these sort of evil genius moves by legislatures. You know, Texas does something unprecedented here, by creating private bounty hunters who can enforce against abortion. Well, who knows where that might lead? And and as Barb points out, the legal technicality is this. In order to stay a statute from going into effect, the court has to find that the, the plaintiff has a substantial chance of success on the merits before they'll enter an injunction and so this this incredible hand-wringing it's worthy of Susan Collins that the Supreme Court engages in oh you know the the Texas legislature they found this unprecedented way of of doing this and we just don't know what are what are we to do there's nothing that we can do here to review the Texas statute well um you know that's that's just a bunch of um hooey so by showing a willingness to let the abortion ban go into effect but not to block statutes that frankly present less of an issue regarding the plaintiff's chance of success on the merits, the public health statutes. I think the message that the court is sending um, to, to states is that if you use this private enforcement mechanism, you can do whatever you want. Or if you come up with another sort of a, an approach, you can do that. So I think... Um, Ultimately, because all of this happens without an an order, we're on the shadow docket, so there's no thoughtful order that details the court's legal reasoning that future litigants can use to decide whether or not they want to engage in similar practices, and it, it lets the court get away with a level of inconsistency here. That's really not in anybody's best interest. To your point, Barb, this is not a good development in the law. It's sort of like the Supreme Court has said to the states, come on, boys, do whatever you want. And if we agree with your policy aims, um, we'll help you out. But not so much if you're from a blue state. I think ultimately this diminishes our rights and simultaneously our respect for the court. And this is a real lose-lose for the rule of law here.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. And I just want to end by pointing out that um, one of the most important and stinging dissents that were that was written in response to this order was by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, which I point out, she's a woman of color, the only woman of color on the bench uh, right now. She grew up knowing what the opposite of privilege is. She grew up uh, knowing what poverty looks like, and I think that's important in this context because, make no mistake, abortion is inaccessible in Texas for those who can't access it. If you are privileged, if you have money, if you have connections, you can still get abortion care in Texas, but others can't, and she called this a breathtaking act of defiance of the Constitution, of this court's precedents, and of the rights of women seeking abortions throughout Texas.
1: Well, I don't know about you folks, but I have found HelloFresh to be a breath of fresh air. I am eating so much better in terms of uh, fresh fish and fresh chicken dishes, fresh vegetables, uh, all by using HelloFresh. And, you know, I'm not the greatest cook in the world, and I don't like to devote too much time to it, but I find that the uh, pre-apportioned ingredients makes it very easy and even a little fun to cook for the family. How about you, Jill? Are you still using HelloFresh? I am, and I thought at first that I would use it only for
2: during you know COVID when I couldn't go to a grocery store. But what I found is I'm making restaurant-class meals that look beautiful because it shows you how to display it as well as how to cook it. There's so no waste because they give you exactly what you need for the recipe, so you don't have to buy a whole head of lettuce if you need one piece of lettuce – it's tasty, it's easy, and it is so much fun to cook. It's a great break in the day, and it doesn't take very long. There's, um, it says that it only takes maybe 10 to 30 minutes, but usually takes me, honestly, an hour from start to finish before I can put it on the table. And my husband loves it. We're really enjoying it. So I'm definitely going to keep on using it. And Kim, what about you? Yeah,
3: I really like HelloFresh too. You know, sometimes when things get very busy and in my household with two journalists in it, especially after a week like we've had this week, uh, it can be very busy. And knowing that you have dinner, that you can prepare quickly, you have all the things that you need right there at your fingertips, and you know that it's gonna be really good, is so, so very helpful. And that is one of the best things about HelloFresh and the fresh part of it. The ingredients are always really top notch. You know, my husband just texted me that we have to
0: order takeout tonight because we're out of HelloFresh. It has really become his go-to for, for cooking because like Kim, you know, we both work. My husband's a judge. He often comes in late without time to plan. And having HelloFresh there has been a godsend for him when it's his night to cook. He makes great meals, and he doesn't have to think about what he's going to make once he's done ordering. So I know he won't make that mistake of letting us run out
1: again. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip the grocery store and sign up with HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable.
2: Fall is busy, but HelloFresh recipes save time you'd otherwise spend meal planning and shopping. And since HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, from vegetarian meals and calorie-smart choices, something that all of us are, I'm sure, ordering their calorie-smart ones, uh, to extra special gourmet options, you'll find something you love.
3: There's something for everyone to enjoy. All tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. HelloFresh gives you the flexibility you need to easily customize your order on the app within minutes. So don't wait to get started. It's so good. Go to hellofresh.com/sisters14.
0: And use code SISTERS14 and get up to 14 free meals, plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash SISTERS14. That's SISTERS14. And use code SISTERS14 to get up to 14 free meals, plus free shipping. That's a great deal.
1: Well, we want to move and talk about a different topic. This week, we saw the beginning of the trial of Elizabeth Holmes, who was the uh, former CEO and founder of the Theranos uh, organization in Silicon Valley. Interesting story. Uh, Joyce, will you take us through that one? Sure.
0: So on Tuesday, this long-awaited trial uh, kicked off with jury selection, Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO of Theranos, as Barb has uh, indicated, was indicted in 2018 after her high-flying blood testing company, Theranos, turned out to be a fraudulent operation. And the trial has been delayed first because of COVID and, and then by the the birth of her first child. This trial is going to take a while, but today let's at least set the table and talk about what she's been charged with, why it's important, and what we might learn in the course of it. So, Kim, can you can you start by laying out who the
3: defendants Elizabeth Holmes and Ranish Balwani are and what they allegedly did? Yes. So, I want to start off by saying, for those who have not seen the HBO documentary The Inventor, you must like stop. Pause this podcast, watch that, and then come back to it because it's so very good. That is is, such good advice, absolutely. (laughs) This this story is bonkers. So Elizabeth Holmes um, is someone who came up with the idea of Theranos when she was a student at Princeton. Um, She got this idea that perhaps we can run blood tests and come up with all kinds of diagnoses by just using a very small amount of blood and running tests that wouldn't just— point to one specific thing, but could discover all a host of ailments, you know, a really great idea. So of course, she takes it to one of her professors. Uh, and s- the professor tells her, no, no, this, <laughs> this isn't how science works. This isn't going to work. But undaunted, uh, Elizabeth Holmes uh, dropped out. You know, if, if Stanford professors weren't going to tell her what she wanted to know, she dropped out. And during the time, she and her then boyfriend, Ramesh Sunny Balwani, who was 20 years her senior. She was 19 at the time that she started this company. And I think they met while she was uh, at, at a, a broad program in China somehow. But they were dating and he would go on to become the COO. Of Theranos, and she began this company to put this together, and immediately started seeking out investors in order to uh, push this forward. She was eventually able, with just an idea, land a lot of big investors, folks like the DeVos family, Bessie DeVos's family, uh, the family who owns Walmart, Rupert Murdoch. That part would be will be a kick in the pants for a reason I will explain later. But just and really generating a lot of buzz about this idea that she could transform healthcare with this simple idea. She was also super secretive about the technology so no one outside ever vetted it. She was just putting it forward to these inventors. She sort of took that idea from Steve Jobs who was very um, notoriously secretive about Apple technology and who was her idol and in fact she was called the female Steve Jobs for a while. Um and so she was developing this uh, technology and also developing partnerships with big companies. I mean, Walgreens and Safeway were agreeing to partnerships in order to have this technology in their pharmacies so that people could go in, just get a simple pinprick on their finger, use it in this machine that was on site, and they were be able to get, be diagnosed with everything from diabetes to cancer to other, to health ailments, Uh all kinds of things, really remarkable. The problem is it wasn't working. Within the company, uh, some folks were finding that these machines, they were called Edison machines, they were supposed to take these little tiny bits of blood and simultaneously test a whole bunch of them at the same time. And if you watch this documentary, it was this little machine that had all these glass parts inside and they were literally shattering, like blood splurting all over the place, it's a mess. And even when the machine itself didn't break, the tests that they were running were wrong. They were diagnosing people with diseases that they didn't have. They were missing diseases that they did have. It was a nightmare. And one of my biggest questions is why wasn't the FDA all up and through this from the beginning? I I don't understand how they were able to sidestep that regulation. Um, But they were not, but they would be later. Meanwhile, she's still... Breaking in all this money. Forbes names her a billionaire. She's doing panel discussions with Bill Clinton. But then things started to fall apart when a Wall Street Journal article came out based in part on whistleblowing from inside the company. Now, Wall Street Journal, Rupert Murdoch owns the Wall Street Journal. That's the kick in the pants. He invested in this company and one of his own, one of the reporters in the publications that he owns really blew the lid off of it. And uh, reported on the problems with the technology that led a whole bunch of federal uh, agencies from the FDA to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to the SEC and the DOJ to quickly get involved. In 2018, Theranos Holmes and Bowani, who she uh, had kicked out of the company, he was ousted for the company by this point. But they were all charged with, quote, massive fraud by the SEC and the DOJ charged them all with felonies.
0: So it's really interesting. I think any time you've got a celebrity board uh, and a highly charismatic CEO, that's sort of a red flag to look a little bit deeper. But like you say, Kim, that didn't happen here until pretty late in the game. They do finally get charged. Jill, can you talk a little bit more about the charges against them? And of course, we know that she will go to trial now. He will go to trial after the first of the year. How do you think that all plays
2: out? Well, first of all, there was an SEC action against them that resulted in her divesting all of her equity in the company and basically the end of the company. But right now, the federal charges are in the U.S. District Court in the Northern District of California, San Jose. And the counts are numerous, um, and they are basically fraud and conspiracy. So, they it's wire fraud as well as just defrauding people by lying about the economic value, how well the company was doing, and also about the product itself. The um, separation of the defendants is quite interesting because it's based on the this superpowered woman who was one of the first women billionaires saying, oh, but it was poor old me. I was really abused and um, I was controlled by this elder man who was my boyfriend and I just couldn't help myself and so it's really not my fault, it's him. And because there are separate trials, both of them can point to the empty chair and say, oh, I'm innocent, it's the the missing person. So it makes it harder for prosecutors to avoid to get a conviction in a situation like that um, the motion for the separate trial is really a ringing uh, endorsement of I don't know exactly what it's it's it, to me it's horrifying I cannot believe that she would be willing to say i'm not competent at all i am I'll never lead another company because although given what the prosecutors say, which is they have irrefutable proof of her guilt, she probably will never lead another company. But this certainly hurts all women if she gets away with this defense. And there is an issue about whether they will. The jury has been selected. Um, the jury and five alternates are now uh, ready to start the trial. The opening statements are set for next week, uh, September 8th. And so I I think this is going to be one we're going to want to follow what the actual evidence shows. And I think we'll be particularly interested in following whether her defense of poor old me, I was uh, abused and controlled and manipulated by this other person, will succeed while she's the one who was out front selling this and bringing in millions and billions of dollars to... uh, get the company up and running. And whatever he did, she certainly knew that her product didn't work. And that's basically the fundamental heart of this case.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. This is a very complicated indictment, but it's really the whole case is about this idea that there's a difference between having a cutting-edge idea and having a made-up idea. And that'll be the origin of the fraud but I'm intrigued by what you say about the defense and her role as a woman. And Barb, I'm sure that you have thoughts about this. I mean, Holmes is a high-powered CEO, one of the, high, the most high-powered in the country um, at, at some points in her career. And she's working in a man's world. How does that play into this case? And how does that impact what will happen and the defense that uh, we hear she's going to offer? I,
1: I think it is going to be a real disconnect between the Elizabeth Holmes that, you know, led with a lot of swagger uh, at the Silicon Valley Company. You know, she dressed like Steve Jobs in the black turtleneck. And um, she she is described as speaking with a distinctively low voice. Almost, and, and, you know, I, I read the Bad Blood book by the Wall Street Journal reporter, which is It's very a great good. book. It, it's very good. And uh, in that book claims that it was an, an affect, that it was a put-on, that people... Who were with her in unguarded private moments? She had a much higher voice, and so it was kind of a, uh, you know, a, a persona she took on to uh, uh, impress people um, or intimidate people. And so that persona doesn't really square with the persona that it sounds like she wants to present at trial, which is, you know, she was just browbeaten by her boyfriend and she did all these things because uh, she was under his spell and he was uh, pushing her to do all these things. And I think even if it is true that he was an abusive boyfriend, it may, it may very well be true. I, I don't know that that absolves her of her criminality in this case. I think the way it needs to be presented legally is to say, um, you know, it doesn't excuse her, but to say because of what she was enduring, this you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever she was enduring, it made her mentally incapable of forming the intent to defraud. And, you know, it's the government's burden to prove intent to defraud as, as part of its case here. And so what I really think is going on is it it gives a chance for the jury to feel some sympathy for her and nullify um, their verdict. Instead of saying, we find all the elements are met here. If she can pose, you know, present herself as a sympathetic figure and the jury feels sorry for her, you really only need one to be a holdout juror and say, You know, I just don't think that the government proved the intent to defraud. I think her will was overborne by Sonny Bilwani, uh, who was browbeating her. And and therefore, uh, I'm going to find her not guilty or I'm going to vote not guilty. And all you need is one to get a hung jury. And so it seems to me that that might be the most likely scenario that we'll see. But, you know, it just doesn't square with the Elizabeth Holmes that's described in Bad Blood. It'll be interesting to see how it plays. In in
0: cases like this with defendants who have a lot of money to throw at the problem, and one presumes she still has some. She's newly remarried to um, the heir to a a chain of of motels or hotels. But one, one thinks that she would be using a jury consultant and that they would be testing strategies. And like you say, Barb, this will not be an effort to obtain an acquittal because she didn't do the crime It'll be an effort to get the jury to nullify, and even if the government has evidence to feel sympathy for her, you know, the legitimate use for that sort of a defense might be its sentencing as an effort to reduce her sentence. But I'm very interested to watch how this case plays out to see how all of this detail comes in.
3: Hey, Joyce, have you been using Olive in June nail products? You know, I have. I went for so long without
0: a manicure and a pedicure during the pandemic, and I finally decided I just had to sit down and do it myself. I'm not the biggest of girly girls. I'm not really very good at it. But I did it, and I, I wanted to paint everything at the end. And so I used my my new supplies from Olive in June. I've got blue... Uh, toes and pale brown fingers and everything looks great. It was actually really easy to use even with my non-dominant hand because of their pedal system with the
2: polish I had an easy time getting it on. What about you Jill? Well I'm using the blue on my toes too so we have matching toes I guess and I love the colors and I love how shiny the nail polish is and I am someone who has for a long time had pedicures and manicures and weekly manicures um, partly because my father used to go he felt that as a professional man his clients needed to see clean hands and well-done nails but this makes it easy to do at home I love their whole system it's really 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 helpful and I know Kim you you love some of the colors too don't you I do love the colors a lot. It's funny that
3: you bu- you guys talked about your blue toes. Blue toenail polish is what I had on my wedding day as my something blue. Oh, I love that. <laughs> but right now I, am, uh, I have like a pinkish color called hibiscus for my pedicure and a nice soft pink uh, called pink sands on my fingers, which I get a ton of compliments on. And I agree with you, Joyce. It's really foolproof. It's really great, especially if you're not quite ready to go back into the salon yet. I'm certainly not. And um, it's really, the colors are beautiful and they last a really long time. So with Olive and June's Manny system, you can have the show-stopping Salon Perfect Nails at an affordable price. Their Manny system is the secret for getting amazing nails at home without the salon price tag and without You know having to wear a mask for for 90 minutes while you sit in the salon everything you need comes right there in the box
2: it's so easy to use especially with the poppy a patented brush handle that makes it so easy to paint with both of your hands their nail polishes last seven days or more and do not
1: chip and that is true olive and june is a game changer If you want your nails to look professionally done, much more affordably, then Olive and June is for you. Even if you've never imagined yourself doing a home manicure, give Olive and June a try. Getting beautiful salon-perfect
0: nails at home is now a dream come true. With Olive in June, your new nail life is here. And let me tell you, these are 10-day nails. They still look perfect, and I go out and deal with chickens every morning. <laughs> so you know this stuff is good. Visit oliveandjune.com sisters and use code SISTERS for 20% off your first Manny system. This is an exclusive offer you can only get here. That's oliveandjune.com SISTERS. And use the code SISTERS for 20% off your first Manny system. You'll be happy that you did.
1: All right, and our final topic is uh, the potential release of Sirhan Sirhan. Jill, I think you were going to take us through that one.
2: Yeah, um, because I lived through the assassination. Um, The phone rang at about 7 a.m. on June 5th. 1968, which was the morning of my graduation from Columbia Law School, and through sobbing on the other end, I heard my classmate Rena say, Bobby Kennedy is dead. Even now, I can remember how I felt then the chills, the disbelief. Bobby Kennedy had just won the California presidential primary and four others before that, and was on his way to being the Democratic nominee for the president. And for me and for much of my generation, this was the end of an era and of our hope to end the Vietnam War and to improve criminal justice and racial equity. Assassinated by Sir Sirhan Sirhan in front of a large crowd in a hotel after he had given a, an acceptance speech for the California primary, Kennedy died the next day and Sir Sirhan Sirhan was convicted by a jury after the judge refused to change his not guilty plea to guilty, and he was sentenced to death. Um, and he, and that was despite the fact that Bobby Kennedy's brother, Senator Ted Kennedy, had asked that he get only life. California then abolished the death penalty before he was executed, and his sentence was changed to life. He's been up for parole as a result a number of times, and he's been denied. But this week, a two-member board, parole board, recommended that he be released. Emotions are still high among those of us who remember the promise of Bobby Kennedy and the damage to democracy that resulted with the election of Richard Nixon over Hubert Humphrey. So I want to delve into what's next in terms of procedural steps role of Sirhan Sirhan. What is the morally and legally correct outcome? And will the politics of Governor Newsom's recall election play a role in the final outcome? So I want to start with you, Barb, um, talking about what the law and the procedures are. There's already been a parole hearing and a recommendation that he be released. What happened at the hearing and what will happen with the recommendation? Where does it go and how fast will there be a final decision?
1: Yes. So um, the parole hearing is done by a panel. Um, And and so the panel's decision uh, in this case was that he be released Um, There are still some steps that have to go before that can be final. Um, Over the next 120 days, the ruling gets reviewed by the board's legal staff for legal or factual error or new evidence. Um, And that is actually a fairly unlikely scenario. It's, it's really just whether they made a mistake, not to second-guess their judgment. You know, were there anything about the law they overlooked? Was there any fact that they overlooked? Is there new evidence, you know, that the person is, um, was not guilty or, or something like that? I don't expect that we'll see anything like that. Um, and as long as there are no uh, uh, errors in the record, then that order will become final. Um, it, it is then sent to um, the governor, Governor Newsom, who can grant uh, the decision, he can reverse it, or he can modify it. He gets 30 days uh, to review it. And in that time, the other thing he can do is sort of punt. And that is, he can refer the decision to the full parole board for review. Remember, this was just a panel of three, two of whom uh, voted in favor of release. And so the full panel, kind of like an en banc decision of, of a court of appeals, that that full board could affirm or reverse that initial panel's decision. Uh, and if it is reversed, then the inmate, Sirhan Sirhan, would get a new parole hearing 18 months after his last one. Um, and with regard to uh, uh, the, the September 14th recall, I think that um, Governor Newsom most likely will be able to just evade that. Uh, I, I think that... With 120 days before, um, for the board's legal staff to look at it, it seems likely that it won't even land on his desk before then. And because he gets 30 days, he can at least avoid a decision until after the recall vote ends on September 14th. So, um, Kim, two of Bobby Kennedy's
2: children and one aide who was also shot that night, because there were five other people actually injured that evening— supported Sir Han's release, and six of his children opposed it. One of those wrote a very emotional op-ed for the New York Times saying why they were opposing it. And so I'd like you to talk about some of the reasons, and we will post um, the op-eds and the, um, that, that were written so that our audience can read the full opinion. But if you could maybe summarize what the two sides are for why he should be released, or why he should continue to remain in jail.
3: Yeah, so I think it's important to point out that there has been this division among the family for years. This isn't something that just came up now. There have been, for years, some members of the family and others, as you pointed out, um, led, uh, sort of, I will say led by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who for years have claimed that they believe that Sirhan Sirhan is innocent. And that is why they want him to be released. I think it's w- really important to note that Sirhan Sirhan admitted to killing Robert Kennedy. He did it in a ballroom uh, at after Kennedy gave his acceptance speech. Pe- there were witnesses. He was tackled by people, including including Rosie Greer, in real real, real time. And he said in court. Not only did he do it, but the reason that he did it was because he was angered by uh, Robert F. Kennedy's stance on Israel. So innocence is really not a defense. It's also important to note that when it comes to parole, a claim of innocence actually works against you. In a parole hearing, you're supposed to state how you have accepted responsibility for what you've done, how you have changed, how you have rehabilitated yourself, how you are no longer the person that you used to be. And for reasons that we can get into later that are not always great for just the administer administering justice, claiming innocence actually works against you. So legally speaking, I don't want to speak about what the folks who um, in the family who want him to be released actually feel or believe, but from a legal perspective, we have the record from Sirhan Sirhan himself who gave um, the admission and it, him who has not himself made a claim of innocence. There are other members of the family um, led by former Congressman Joe Kennedy uh, who believe otherwise. And I think it's also important to note, just as an aside— what the family feels is not a factor for parolees, um, the parole board to consider in California. So this is important. It's it's heart-wrenching to hear, but it's technically not something that should sway the parole board's reasoning one way or another. But Joe Kennedy pointed out something that should, which is this was not an ordinary murder. This is someone who thought that they could make their political decisions, Disagreement, their objection to someone's politics—that they could solve that with a gun—and in our democracy, that cannot stand. We cannot allow that. I I wrote in my column, which is in the um, show notes, that there's such a small class of people who I believe should never see the light of day. I don't believe in capital punishment. I don't believe that a just society should um, support state-sanctioned killings. But there are some folks who should just never be released, and I think. You know, there are for folks like um, the, the Boston Marathon bomber, certainly folks like Sirhan Sirhan fit in that. Um, and so that is the case that the other side of the family made.
1: Can I just interject for a second? And I do want to talk about that, Kim, because I agree with you on, on that point. But did you say Rosie Greer tackled Sirhan Sirhan? Yes, Rosie
3: Greer tackled Rosie, Sir Sirhan Sirhan. Yes. Did didn't Rosie he Greer did.
1: also take the confession of O.J. Simpson?
3: I,
0: I, Did he?
1: I don't think yeah, I. Knew I don't that. know about that. He was like 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 ministering to him in prison. Wow! You know, and there was some rumor that he had he 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 asserted privilege, like uh, mm. priest or you know clergyman penitent privilege to not testify about it. at OJ trial. Yeah, Strong, Rosie Greer. Rosie Greer is like. This was so long ago that candidates didn't have Secret
0: Service protection. And so Rosie Greer was actually sort of private security
1: on
2: on Kennedy's swing. It was not only Rosie Greer, but Jimmy Breslin and George Plimpton were also part of that, which are names that I remember. I hope all of you do. If not, Google it, because you should know their names. Um, But let's get more into that issue, which is sort of... um, following up on what Kim was saying about the legal um, and the moral issues involved here. And Joyce, I I want you to talk about the basic principles for sentencing and then for parole decisions. You know, talk about retribution versus deterrence and uh, looking at whether someone's likely to reoffend and how do the facts play out here in your opinion. And then I, I want everyone to weigh in on this as well. So I've
0: just finished teaching a a segment on this in my first-year criminal law class, and I think Barb is in the middle of it right now. This is this important conversation we have with our students about what are the principles that animate the criminal justice system? What are we trying to accomplish If we're gonna lock people up and take away their liberty, we ought to have very good reasons for doing that, that we're able to articulate. And the commonly accepted principles in sentencing include retribution or punishment, this notion that someone has done something horrible and we're going to punish them for it. Also deterrence. And that could be deterring this individual from committing future crimes, or just general deterrence in the community. Let's deter other people from doing this sort of uh criminal conduct by imposing sentences that are serious and significant. There is also a sentencing principle that thinks about incapacitation of someone who is dangerous, so they can't harm folks in the community. And then also this notion of rehabilitation. How can we help this person make amends for what they've done? How can we prepare them to return to their community and live a a productive life? And often uh, among people who are interested in criminal justice reform, there's really a tendency to relegate the role of retribution, relegate the role that punishment plays, and and think about a society that should be better than that. Let's focus uh, on things like rehabilitation. This is a case that really makes us think about the role that retribution should play, I mean, Kim talks about the notion that this is just one of those cases where she never wants to see Sirhan come out of prison because of the kind of conduct that he's engaged in. So I teach Barb. I don't know if you if you use this case or not, but a 1972 case called Furman versus Georgia. It's about capital punishment, and it's a very unusual case. There's not a majority opinion. It's unanimous, or, or actually it's not unanimous, but it, it is a, a decision where each of the justices writes a separate opinion, both in the concurrence and the dissent, talking about whether or not capital punishment is appropriate. And they, they have wildly varying rationales, and they're having a conversation amongst themselves about the role that retribution should play in the criminal justice system. Some of them believe that we should be better than that, that we should never use capital punishment, that it's cruel and unusual. And there's an interesting nuance in some of the dissent arguments that I think matters here for Sir Hahn, where some of the justices talk about the importance of having retribution, both because it's fair to punish for bad conduct, but also because we'll have vigilante justice in our society if people don't believe that the criminal justice system is working and delivering an appropriate measure of punishment. The fact that every justice wrote separately tells you that this can be a difficult and a divisive sort of an issue. Um, I'd encourage people to actually go and read Furman versus George. It's actually very accessible for folks without a legal background. But the issue it spotlights here is very interesting. It's this notion of whether there is some class of crimes or criminals that are so horrible that those people should never come out of prison unless it's in a pine box. And in an era where we increasingly have a legal system that wants to give people a second chance, um, the question is whether Sirhan is, is in a very narrow range of people who should never get one. The the moment that we're living through, I think, gives this issue additional poignancy, right? We've lived through January 6th. We understand all too well the threat that violence can um, issue towards our system of government. This could be a terrible moment to deliver the message that Sir Sirhan has somehow entitled to be released from prison at this point in time. And so while in California, the factors that are considered for parole, they center on this notion of whether or not this defendant still presents a risk to the community. That sort of harkens back to this notion of incapacitation, right? We need to incapacitate dangerous people California in parole really asks the question, does this person still pose a danger to the community? And whether or not Sirhan Sirhan does, the issue is whether he needs to stay in prison for other reasons. When when we talked about this, I suggested that deterrence was important, that by not letting him get out, it sends a message to others who might use violence to achieve political initiatives, that they should think very carefully about whether they want to spend the rest of their life in prison. And I think that y'all were not as compelled by that notion of deterrence and thought that there might be other reasons. So, so I'm interested to hear where everyone has ended up on this.
1: Well, I too teach... Um... These theories of punishment, Joyce, and we've been talking about it right now in class, so it's it's very timely. And I think in most instances, I consider myself a utilitarian, you know, focusing on things like public safety and deterrence as purposes for taking away someone's liberty. But I think I agree with Kim that um, and you that retribution is a legitimate purpose of sentencing. It's right there in the federal statute: the need for just punishment, and that's this idea that you have so harmed society and you have so breached the social contract. That you are deserving of of substantial punishment, and I believe in a case like this, punishment for the rest of one's life. That's not true of most offenders, but what is so egregious about what Sirhan Sirhan did is he attacked uh, the very foundation of our government. he tried he successfully assassinated someone who was very likely to be the next president of the United States. In that way, he altered the history of the United States. If Kennedy becomes president, perhaps we have no Nixon. If we don't have Nixon, we don't have Watergate. Without Watergate, we don't have the erosion of public trust in our institutions of government. I, mean, I really believe he altered the course of history. And so I think that when someone does that, so egregiously attacks uh, the United States of America, that um, there is no... there is no. Um, penalty that is too harsh. Uh you know, we've talked about the death penalty and and that is one that uh you know, I think has a lot of downsides and is certainly not an option in California. So the harshest penalty available under California law is a life sentence and it seems to me that is appropriate here. Um, but you know, Jill, you you tend to be the resident lib. What do you well, think? Well, I I am the resident <laughs> lib I think, but this one
2: is so personal to me because I was a big supporter of Bobby Kennedy, and it really did change American history. I I believe exactly what you just said and what I tried to convey in my opening remarks about how personal this was to me, that it's hard for me to see how someone who could have done that could ever be let out. But there's another reason why in this particular case, even though I tend to be the one who would say, well, forgive and forget— Um, is that he hasn't really shown remorse. If you look closely at what he's saying, he's not saying, I did it and I'm sorry. And I think he poses a continuing danger. Um, I actually had a case when I was Solicitor General of Illinois um, where Bill Friedkin, the director, was... um, supporting the release of the longest serving prisoner in Illinois, a man named Crump, who had um, basically a conspiracy murder uh, when he was quite young. I believe he was maybe a teenager. And he'd been in prison for 50 years or something like that at the time. But he was mentally ill and needed to be on medicine. And if he were to be released, he, even at this elderly age that he was, might have stopped taking his medicine and could have been a danger to society. So I had to, and it was nothing like killing the future president of the United States, Bobby Kennedy. Um, It was, any murder is horrible and any person who commits a murder deserves to be punished for that. But um, I had to argue that he should stay in forever because of his mental health and unless it improved. And I feel quite comfortable in this case, in Sirhan Sirhan, that he should not be released. And I also was moved by Rory Kennedy's um, op-ed as to why. I mean, she was actually born, her, her mother um, was pregnant with her at the time her father was assassinated. And so she never knew her father. But she knows what her father was and could have been. And um, I think all of that says to me, absolutely, Sirhan Sirhan should not be released. And um, he he should definitely stay. Wow,
0: sisters all in agreement on this one.
1: All right, we have a question today. In light of uh, the time, we'll just take one. It's from Mary in the San Francisco Bay Area of California. And she asked whether there, uh, we're aware of any concerted efforts to ask Stephen Breyer to retire in the, new, in the near future. Let me just ask each of you, sisters, do you think Stephen Breyer should retire in the near future?
3: Well, I was going to say, I don't know if there is a concerted effort to get him to. I know he has eyes and ears. Uh, I know he subscribes to the paper that I write for, in which I wrote a a column (laughs) explaining all the reasons why he should. Look, I understand his principle that the law uh, should be above politics and that he's written a whole book about it. He also is a former uh, Senate Judiciary Committee attorney. He worked for Ted Kennedy. He is well aware of what politics are. He's well aware of what has happened to this court. And I think at this point, um, it is clear that what is good for the court in terms of balance, in terms of being forward thinking and bringing diversity onto this court, that that is the least that he could do. He has had a long and distinguished career. We thank him for his service. And I think that it is time for him to go. Joyce, what about you? I'm going to answer by saying that I have
0: evolved to believe in term limits for federal judges. We are a different Agreed. society than we were when the Constitution was adopted in the sense that people live an awful lot longer. And I think imposing lengthy but appropriate term limits would maybe shift back the age at which federal judges were confirmed. And we wouldn't have any more of these unqualified 34-year-olds who were put on the bench in hopes that they can rule against abortion for the remainder of their natural lives. Um, I apologize. I think my anger is showing a little bit. But on, on a serious note, you know, putting term limits in place would resolve some of this. And it could be done in a fair way that would create more balance between presidents of different administrations putting folks on the bench.
1: So that's my answer. It's a good point, Joyce. The, uh, the, the, the lifespan of people. In my former office, we used to say, welcome to federal court where the judges serve for life. And it seems longer.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Jill, what's your, what's your
2: view? So I'm going to recuse myself from this answer because uh, Justice Breyer was a colleague of mine during Watergate, and his brother is a very dear friend. He is a federal judge in San Francisco, in the federal courts in California.
1: Uh, But he has senior status,
3: right? (laughs) Don't rub it in. What, what are you <laughs> but no, but the point that? is, if you have a system like that, so for people who don't know, senior status means right. that they're still members of the bench and they can yes. sit in, in cases sometime and they rotate out. Um, Justice of uh, Retired Justice David Souter sits on the First Circuit. It doesn't have to be the end of your career.
2: What? Yeah, Wait, but they get replaced I, I, when they take hold senior on. status. That's what's important. You didn't let me finish. I agree with Joyce about term limits. I'm fine with that. But in terms of advising Justice Breyer, I am recusing myself from advising him. I think that I I will leave it up to him.
1: (laughs) That's fair enough. But um, all right, so I'm going to give my view, and it is this. This week has really hit home that Ruth Bader Ginsburg made a, a mistake in not retiring when she had a chance so that she could be replaced. And I think that every... Day that Justice Breyer stays on the court inches us a little bit closer to the midterms and a little bit closer to a time when Mitch McConnell has shown that he is willing to uh, hold candidates hostage uh, to exercise raw power to get the makeup he wants on the court. And so I think um, Justice Breyer should retire. Yesterday. Barb, I've got to ask: Ooh. Do you think Mitch McConnell would have let uh, a replacement
0: for RBG be confirmed? I mean, this is a man who has simultaneously argued that you can't confirm a candidate in the the election year and has also confirmed a candidate after voting has already started in a presidential election year. His hypocrisy knows no bounds. I think he would have found a way to make even that difficult.
1: Uh, Maybe you're right, but I think um, the lesson we've learned from that situation is while the Senate is still controlled by Democrats, it's time to get out of Dodge. Thanks for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Winebanks, Kimberly Atkins-Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw@politicon.com, or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. This week's sponsors are Third Love, HelloFresh, and Olive and June. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law.
2: Thank you. And what, when you mentioned your chickens, we have a new pet in our house. My husband Ooh. said he was having midlife crisis and he had to get a fish.
0: Oh, <laughs> what kind? Is it a beta? What is it?
2: It's a beta. It's a beta. A beta. It's They're a beta. Great. It's a beta. Yeah. And I mean, he's like talking to this fish. He's named the fish. He's, you know, watching it eat to make sure it eats every pellet he puts in.
3: It's How hysterical. big is it? y'all the and so
2: far... When I went up to D.C. for my
0: U.S. attorney interview, you know, the big one with Holder, I stayed in a hotel that's the old post office, the Monaco. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I go into my room, and I hadn't really stayed in hotels that were that nice a whole lot, and there were two beta fish in the room in, in separate bowls, mm-hmm. and one was Dwight D. Eisenhower, and one was Iris, and so, you know, it was like, great, I had something to make myself less nervous. But in the middle of the night, they got very agitated. And I finally put their, <laughs> really? you know, betas, you're supposed to keep them apart or they fight. But I finally decided yeah. maybe they want company. So I put them together, the two fishbowls, and they calmed down. And I was able to finally go back to sleep and get a, a good night's sleep. But I have wanted betas ever since that. They're so cool.
2: Well, I'll let you know how it goes in our household. So far, Brisby has not noticed Noodles is our beta's noodles. name. And you might ask why noodles, because Thai noodles. It's a Siamese <laughs> fighting fish okay anyway it's it's my husband planned the name before he bought the fish it's just i mean he's like <laughs> it's ridiculous gosh, i'm fantastic. glad he's found something to make him happy
0: that's Me great too. Yes. and joyce i hope those yes.
3: fish that you that you saw were taken care of before the next proprietor of that hotel space came
0: in <laughs> oh man i know one really hopes yeah. right they were so cute. They yeah. had, like, those little name cards like you would put out at a, a dinner party. And it was like, hi, my That's name funny. is Dwight D. Eisenhower. It was
1: so cute. <laughs> All right. When I stayed at that hotel, I declined the fish. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I so not surprised? <laughs>